0: This whole unit here we've been on in Revelation is pretty interesting. Revelation 12, we were introduced to the, to the great red dragon. The great red dragon is the greatest enemy of God's people. That was true then. That's also true today. Like Brother Greg preached about last Sunday, this great red dragon is also referred to as a roaring lion in the Scriptures. He's also called the serpent of old, the tempter. The evil one, Satan. Satan is the main enemy in Revelation. I want you to always remember that, okay? Think Satan before you even think about Rome. Think of Satan. Satan is the one who is using the two beasts, according to chapter 13, to try to assault the kingdom of God. The sea beast, which we said represents the political power of Rome, and then the earth beast, which represents the emperor worship system that was going on at this time. In chapter 14, we learn that God's people, even though they're going to be assaulted by the devil and his henchmen, they're ultimately going to be victorious. God's going to lead them to victory over all of their enemies. When we looked at verses 1 through 5 of Revelation 14, we saw a picture of the saints, the 144,000, not a literal number, but a number that represents all of God's people, the totality of God's people. I believe they're pictured in victory in heaven, the place where God's people receive their ultimate rest. We saw how in verses 6 through 7, we saw angels beginning to speak. There's one angel who proclaims good tidings to all mankind. He tells them to worship God because Rome's judgment has come. In verse 8, this is emphasized further by a second angel who calls out, fallen, fallen, is Babylon the great. Babylon, in that context, is a reference to the current enemy, the Roman Empire. Verses 9 through 11, the punishment of the wicked is announced in great detail. In verses 12 through 13, the reward of the faithful is announced. There we learn that the great blessing of dying in the Lord is we receive what? We receive what, according to verse 13? Rest, that's right. We get rest. That's our true Sabbath, according to Hebrews chapter 4. And then in verses 14 through 20, God declares his patience with Rome is is up. Her wickedness is full. Full judgment will now come upon her. In fact, we found some interesting language there to describe that. Remember, there in that chapter, we found the Son of Man, Jesus, using a sharp sickle to reap, to reap from the harvest of the earth. He gathers the wicked. Like clusters, and he throws them into the great winepress, which represents the great wrath of God. Now in verse number twenty of Revelation 14, in verse 20, the last verse says, And the wine press was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horses' brittles, for a distance of two hundred miles. The idea of that language. Well, I believe the main thing they really consider there from that language is this judgment that's going to come from God It's going to be a complete judgment. It's going to be a full judgment. It is going to be like blood going throughout a city. It's going to be a full judgment. Unlike the previous chapters where we only found God's judgment being executed a third, a third of God's judgment, this is not a third here. This is full this is a full judgment. This is complete. It's gonna be like a gracie of blood going throughout the world. All of God's enemies were gonna suffer. They were gonna be punished and forever cast away from his presence. That's what that strong, symbolic, apocalyptic language, I believe, represents. And so we come now to the summary chapter or the summary of the chapter. And in this chapter, we learn that Rome's power is limited. That's very important. It may have been a great empire, but it had limited power, limited power. She may have been powerful, but not more powerful than God. God's people may have been suffering, but God was going to vindicate them and bring judgment upon the empire. God saw everything that was taking place, and he was ready now to bring down the enemies of his people. And so that's kind of where we were, or that's where we left off on Wednesday. Let's pause for a little bit before we read uh, the short chapter of Revelation 15. Let's see. Does anybody have any comments, questions about from Revelation 14? Anybody want to say anything from Revelation 14? This is your chance right now. Anything from Revelation 14? Does that all that make sense? Are we good? Somebody give me a thumbs up or something. Y'all looking at me kind of weird. Okay, we good? All right. Good deal. All right. Thank you, Lisa. I appreciate that. All right. Let's go now to chapter 15. I'm going to throw a summary slide up for chapter 15 for now. And you can write that down if you want to, but I'm just going to keep this up. I'm going to keep this up for, for the time being. In Revelation 15 is only eight verses. So let's go ahead and just read. We're going to read what's going on here in the chapter. In this great chapter, I believe what's going on here is God's going to take some time to comfort his people. He's going to encourage his people. He's going to encourage He's going to encourage the church. Now, we just learned in Revelation 14 that God's patience is up. It's up with Rome. He's given them enough time to repent. His full wrath is about to come upon them. He's about to do away. He's about to do away with the empire. That's the main message of chapter 14. And God's going to go into detail about how he's going to do this. But before he does that, he does, like we've also already seen many times in this book, he is going to paint a scene of comfort for his people. He always wants to comfort his people. And so he's going to comfort his people. He's going to paint a scene of victory. I believe that what we find here in Revelation 15 is a picture of the aftermath, the aftermath of what's going to happen once God brings down the empire. I believe here in Revelation 15, God's people are being pictured as being with God they are with God and they are celebrating the fact that God has vindicated them and brought down their enemies. Do you remember back when we looked at the what was it the fifth seal and the seven seals when you had the souls under the altar, the modern Christians. What were they shouting from under the altar? Do you remember? How long, how long? And God told them to rest. You just rest and wait. Well here This is God has finally done that. He's finally avenged them. And we see a picture of them with God celebrating that God has kept his promise. And so let's start with Revelation 15. Look at verse 1. Verse 1. Remember, I read from the New American Standard Translation. John says, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels, who had seven plagues, which are the last. "...because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who have been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations." Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. One of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven bowls, full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with, the, with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Okay, so let's go back to verse number 1. In verse number 1, notice how there the last of God's judgment, of God's judgments are presented. What are they called? What are the judgments of God called there in verse number one? How many of them? They're called seven plagues. What's the big deal about the number seven again? Somebody tell me. Complete. This is a complete judgment, isn't it? It's not a third here. This is seven plagues of wrath. That's how God's judgment is described in that verse. It is described as plagues. I can't help but think about something from the Old Testament. When you think of plagues... What do you think about from the Old Testament? Yeah, you think about Moses and how God used plagues in that time to bring judgment upon his enemies. There, and when you look at this chapter very carefully here, and we don't have time to really get into this, there is a lot of things that point back to the exodus in this chapter. There's a lot of things that remind you of the exodus, and I think that's intentional. I think that is intentional by John here. You have plagues being referred to, God's going to bring plagues upon his enemy, seven plagues, seven, like y'all said, being complete, this is a complete judgment from God, now at the end of the chapter and and really going into the next chapter, these seven plagues are also going to be called something else, they're also going to be called seven what, bowls of wrath, so it's like you got a big bowl, seven big bowls, and inside of the bowls are God's wrath, that's the idea, Symbolic language there. It's like God's wrath is included in a big old bowl, and the bowls are going to be dumped out. Can you imagine having God's wrath dumped out on you? You want that? You want seven bowls of God's wrath? This this is the idea here, God's judgment. So you got seven angels with seven plagues. The seven plagues are called the last. Why Why are they called the last? This is it. This is the last. No more time for repentance. God's doing away with them. The seven plagues are the last. The idea there is this is a full judgment, the full wrath of God. The wrath of God is finished. Brother Dunn, go right ahead, sir. When you look
1: at the plagues that Moses Moses, it was against Egypt only. So it was the exact number necessary to bring about the objective of releasing
0: Israel. Right. From body.
1: This is the complete number. There ain't no more. You know, this is it. Final. Done.
0: You know, the Egyptians, you know, they, they continued on as a nation, even after that. They continued on. In fact, when you read, when you read the prophets carefully, God continues to bring judgment upon the Egyptians through various times in history. Isaiah 19, it's a great passage where it talks about God riding on a cloud into Egypt. That was way after, way after the Exodus. So there is a contrast there too. You're right, Don. Um, Not just with the idea of you have 10 plagues and they were 10 literal plagues that accomplished a specific purpose. And I think that's one of the keys here. With those plagues, even with those plagues, there was a sense in which God, he knew Pharaoh was going to repent, but he was still giving him a chance with every plague. Pharaoh could have changed, couldn't he? He could have changed. He chose not to. He chose to rebel against God, to fight against God, and with every plague that came upon him, God was exposing something. He was exposing the false gods of the Egyptians. That's really what was going on. And through that, through their suffering, God's will was accomplished, the people were let go. This is the idea of vindication. This is not so much exposing false gods, but this is God punishing people for rebelling against Him and, and, and trying to destroy His church. And there are no miracles mentioned here specifically, are there? Now, there were miracles going on in, in Egypt, but how is God going to bring down Rome? This is going to be, and you look at the history, it's providentially. God's going to use natural means. See, God can punish us any way he wants to. Sometimes in the Bible, we read about him doing it through miracles. He punished people through miracles. And sometimes he did it providentially, just through by natural means. And I think that's what happens here. And it's just as powerful. In fact, in my judgment, it may even be more powerful, watching or reading about God doing it providentially. So the wrath of God is finished. Now look at verse 2. Good comment, Don, thank you. In verse 2, God's people there are described as victorious. That's a victorious verse. They're described as standing on a sea of glass mixed with fire. And they're standing in victory over who? According to verse 2, the beast and his image. So they're victorious over the beast. They're victorious over everything the beast stands for. They're victorious over the empire and the false emperor worship system. God prevails, just like he prevailed in Egypt, mind you, against the Egyptians and their false worship, their false gods. There that parallel is again. Now, they're holding harps. Let me ask y'all something. I might get in trouble for doing this. This is what happens when I try to ad-lib a little bit. I should stay on the script done, but I can't help myself. What do y'all think about those harps? I mean, we can speculate, that's about it, I think. You know, I remember being in school, and and a lot of folks knew that I was affiliated with the Church of Christ, and my classmates were always messing with me about instrumental music. And they would say, how can you go to a church that doesn't believe instruments are okay? You can read about harps in Revelation. So what do y'all think about that? What, what, what What do we say about the harps there? Say it again, somebody say it louder. Somebody say it something back there. Say it louder, please. Not literal. You got literal harps in heaven? Really? A spiritual place? Did not Paul say that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God? And even if they were literal, which they're not, you're right. What does that have to do with what we're doing on the earth? It's nothing to do with that. So that's not the point. The point of the harps there is not to tell us. How to worship on the earth. That totally misses the point. Brother Gary, go right ahead, sir. It introduces the idea of song. Yes, that's exactly the point. Gary said it. It's introducing what's coming up next. That's the point. It's, it's setting up this Song of Moses. You know, I read something, and I, hopefully I can recite it correctly. But one of the things that was interesting about first century worship for the Jews, especially on the Sabbath day, is they would often sing the Song of Moses. They would sing the Song of Moses. They would sing it from Exodus 15 in the morning, and they would sing the one from Deuteronomy 32 in the evening. And why would they do that on the Sabbath day? Well, because they viewed that text often as a text that talked about the rest and deliverance of God's people. So they felt it was appropriate for them to do it on that day, on the day of rest. And under the Old Covenant, was there of music that was part of their worship? It's pretty clear it was. And so maybe that is the idea there. Maybe that is a, this is an Old Testament reference here or, or getting us to think about something from the Old Testament that's going to be ultimately fulfilled spiritually in the New Testament. The Song of Moses, the worship of Israel, particularly if John was familiar with with what they did on the Sabbath in in Jerusalem, maybe that's the idea there. Uh, That makes sense to me. But I agree with you, Gary. I think this is setting up, this this idea here is setting up the main point of the unit, which is the Song of Moses and the Lamb. So that's a good point. Brother Rick, go right ahead, sir. I've been thinking about that, Rick, for for twenty four hours, <laughs> I'll tell you. and I and i read what commentary say about it. I mean, I, want, I definitely want to hear your thoughts. Okay. Like, right. However, in you know, Old Testament times, the sea was out before the tabernacle. It was what the priests went in to purify themselves before going in. And and you know what? That makes a lot of sense, and that could be a reference as well. And and in addition to what you're saying, something else that popped in my mind was the passage through the sea of Israel going out of Egypt. And once they passed through the sea, what did they sing on the other side? They sung the song of Moses. So that's something else I thought about that maybe that could be a possibility as well. It's just good things to, to speculate, I think. I really do. I think both of the ideas, at least in my judgment, make sense. Brother Don, yes, sir.
1: You had the wood, but it was covered over with gold, and the gold was polished to a high sheen. And then the candelabra setting on the side, so you've got the light back and forth, gold mirrors, to gold mirrors. And it's like an infinite. You're looking into mirrors that give you. That's like the sea. Country. Yes. Yes. So that's a
0: I, no, I, I think those are. That makes sense as well. I mean, in my judgment, everything y'all are saying, I, I, I think it's good things to speculate on, and I think it, it's very. It could be likely true. It makes sense. Doug, I'm, not, I'm calling on you. Okay, good. I don't want you to say <laughs> nothing. No, somebody else had a. Who else had a comment? Was that was you, you Jamal? Go right ahead, sir. Yes. A change is taking place. Well, I, I, you know, this symbolic language here, I think John is just trying to paint a picture here. I really don't think this has anything to do with how to worship and, and things like that. This is just John trying to paint a beautiful scene, a scene of, of victory ultimately for God's people. Dave, you have a comment, sir? Go right ahead. The song of song your yes. Dave, that, that's, that sets up perfectly what I want to say next. So let's go on to the next part. Let's go on to verse 3. because I appreciate all your comments. It's very good comments. In verse 3, we find them praising God for giving them the victory. Like Dave said, this is about victory. Notice how they sing the song of Moses. The song of Moses. The song of Moses, and Dave already made reference to it, is a song of victory. You can read about it twice in the Old Testament that I'm aware of. There is Exodus 15, right when they come across the Red Sea. They sing the Song of Moses, but Moses also uh, talks about it in Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32 also has a Song of Moses, and that wouldn't be long uh, after, or not long after that, let me say it right, they would conquer the Promised Land and receive their rest in Canaan, that next generation of Israelites. The song of Moses is a song of victory. It is a song where God's people give him glory and honor for nurturing them, developing them, and ultimately delivering them from slavery. That song is a song of praise to God for all he had done for his people. That's why they sung it in the time of Moses, and that is why it is being used here. It's being used for the very same reason. It is to be used to talk about God nurturing and developing a new people, spiritual Israel, and God delivering those people ultimately from a slave master worse than the Egyptians. And that slave master is what? Sin. Satan and sin we tied together, but ultimately, I'm thinking about sin. Sin is described as a master, a slave master in the book of Romans. Y'all remember that? Described as a master. And so let's talk about, let's talk a little bit about what is said here about this song. Will you go through the song with me a little bit? I just kinda wanna spend the rest of our time breaking this down. I hope you will appreciate this with me, and I hope you can prepare your mind to worship a great God in just a moment. These people in this song, they glorify God. They glorify God by describing many of his attributes. Now look at the first part of the song. We, we've just talked about it being called the Song of Moses, but it's also called the Song of Moses and the Song of the what? The Lamb. The Lamb. We've seen that language already many times in Revelation. The Lamb is who? The Lamb is Christ. Remember, Moses was a type of Jesus. He, his work ultimately foreshadowed what Jesus would do, but Jesus would do it at an even higher level. And the Hebrew writer makes this point in the book of Hebrews. How Jesus is superior to Moses. That's one of his points in Hebrews. And so the first song in the Old Testament is called the Song of Moses. But God's people here in Revelation 15 are singing the song of the Lamb, they're singing the song of Jesus, they're singing the song of a deliverer that is greater than Moses. While Moses delivered Israel out of Egyptian slavery, the lamb, Jesus, through his work as the lamb, through his sacrifice as the lamb, he led his people out of the slavery of sin. Do you see that? You see the parallel there? Moses leads Israel out of physical bondage. Jesus is greater than Moses, and he leads us out of spiritual bondage. The song of the Lamb. That's our ultimate victory. Our ultimate victory as Christians is victory over sin, victory over the disease that can cause us to lose our souls forever. And through Jesus, we receive that. Go ahead, Brother Dunn. Go right ahead, sir. That's exactly right. Through Jesus, God developed a new nation of people, a spiritual nation. He nurtured us. He brought us out of bondage through the work of the Lamb. Brother Rick, go right ahead, sir. Yes, sir. And you in Exodus 15, sir? I'm in Deuteronomy. Oh, Deuteronomy. You're in Deuteronomy. Okay. that on, be rejoicing Yep. yep. And, that's, and that is, I think, I think here, even in Deuteronomy 32, there are some messianic elements to that. I think this is a point, I think Moses is pointing people to the Messiah and the ultimate deliverance that was coming. Uh, the ultimate rest that was coming from God's people and to the ultimate promised land, which was heaven. And I think it, all of that ties to Revelation 15. I think, it's, I think Revelation 15 is showing us the fulfillment of even what was being sung in the Song of Moses, ultimately, and what Moses was pointing to. Because did not Moses and I say, even in Deuteronomy, there is a prophet coming greater than me, and you should do what with him? You should listen to him. What did God tell John the Baptist after Jesus came out of the water? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And in that same language is repeated when they're on the Mount of Transfiguration, And what did he say to Peter when Peter opened his big mouth and said, let's build three tabernacles? Hear him. him. I think God right there is making a play or making a reference back to Moses words, because who was on the mountain with them when they woke up from their nap? Moses. (laughs) Moses was there. It's it's deep. It's deep. And and so I, I appreciate you. I appreciate you bringing that up. So this is the song of the Lamb. Now, Look at the next part. Great and marvelous are your works. This is a song of praise to God. Great and marvelous are your works. You know, many times in the Bible, God is praised for his great and marvelous works. I'm going to give you a few references here. I hope you've noticed this in the Psalms. If you keep reading the Psalms and I hope you're doing that, just kind of just make just get you a little piece of paper or marking your Bible like I do. Just notice all the times God is praised for his great and marvelous works. Psalm 92, verse 5, Psalm 92, and verse 5, Psalm 98, in verse 1, Psalm 145, verse 17. It's all over the Psalms where God is praised by his people for being great and performing marvelous works. And in this cra- case, the, the work, the marvelous work of God is the work of deliverance, the work of God keeping his promise to deliver his people from their enemies and ultimately in the end bring them into the safety of of his eternal home that's a great and marvelous work that god could save people like us paul constantly praised god for that didn't he second timothy chapter one and don and i actually were emailing each other about this and the idea of self-forgiveness and that's a whole other discussion but one of the things we were talking about with paul was how paul you know would constantly talk about his past wouldn't he why did Paul always talk about his past and how he persecuted the church? I mean, somebody may look at that and go, well, Paul, come on, move on. Why do you keep bringing it up all the time? Well, Paul did move on. Paul didn't let his past stop him from pressing forward. Remembering Philippians 3, he says, I press forward. I, I, I press on for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul never let his past stop him from moving on in the future, but he constantly brought up his past because he was trying to teach something. He was trying to tell people that if God has saved somebody like me, That's hope for anybody. That's the point. That's that's what he's saying. I'm the chief sinner, Paul said. I'm the chief sinner. And if God will save me, y'all all all got a chance. He's trying to encourage us and let us know that God's grace is, is just bigger than words can describe. That it could even save a man who tried to destroy the church. So the great and marvelous work of God is the work of redemption. How he saved people like us and like Paul. And then if you notice in the text, it talks about God being almighty. That's important for the people of God to have heard in the first century, because they may have thought that Rome was the almighty. They might have thought that nobody could stop Rome. This empire is too strong. The world had never seen an empire like that. God in this song is being praised. After it's all said and done, the people realize he's almighty. He's mightier than Rome. No one can stop God. No one can defeat God. He's also described as just and true in his ways. All of God's ways are just. All of his ways are true. We talked about that in that first sermon where Israel, with that proverb they came up with, they were accusing God of not being just and not being true. And God blasted them and smacked them down. God never makes mistakes. God's justice is right. In this case, God had given these people enough time to repent. And judgment was coming. There were going to be no excuses. God is also king of the saints. I'm using the New King James translation here, and I really like it. King of the saints. How often do you think about that? How often do you think about God being your king? I think that can be difficult for us to think about because we don't live in a culture where we have a king, do we? We got a president, we got a Senate, we got Congress, they always fighting, can agree on anything. We don't live. I mean, we want to be liberated from that system. That's how America got started. They want to be liberated from the system of having a king. So it's hard for us to kind of relate to that. But the Bible says God is our king. He's the king of the saints. In addition to being our lamb, our saver, savior, our redeemer, God is our king. God is the one who we must submit to and allow to rule over us. And let's just be honest. We don't like that too often, especially as Americans. We don't want nobody telling us what to do. We don't want nobody telling us who to marry and and where to go and telling us we got to wear a mask in this place and not wear it in that. We don't like that. We complain about that stuff. We don't like nobody telling us what to do as Americans. We celebrate our freedom. And there's nothing wrong with that. But let's not go too far with that. Let's understand that God does have the right to tell us what to do. He made us, and we need to allow him to rule over us completely. We make an argue with the government about things we don't like, but we don't need to argue with God. God is the potterer, and we are the what? We're the clay. We do what he says. In fact, that brings us to the next part where it says... Who shall not fear you, O Lord? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. We all should fear God. In that Proverbs 1 and verse 7, the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. We need to fear God. And sadly, many people don't fear God, do they? What is the ultimate test that somebody doesn't fear God? What is the ultimate demonstration that somebody doesn't fear God or if they do fear God? What would y'all say? What is, the, what is the ultimate way I could show you that I either fear God or don't fear God? Yes. Either accept Jesus or not obedience. That's really what it's all about. I mean, I could sit here all day and say, I fear God. I fear God. I fear God. But if I don't live that way where I show it, then, then that's, the real, that's the real test and demonstration right there. That's the real truth. I don't fear God. Because if I fear God, I would do what he says. I would fear the punishment for disobeying him. Right? We need to fear God. And then notice the part about how we need to glorify his name. He needs to be glorified. And that's something else that's found through the Bible. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Paul says, whatever you do in word or deed, you do it all to the glory of God. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and then as a result of that want to glorify your Father who's in heaven. God is worthy of glory. That's really what everything is about at the end of the day. That's what our worship should be about, our Bible study, our lives, everything we do, our marriages, how we raise our kids, how we act on our jobs. It all should be about glorifying God. I want to glorify God, bring the glory to Him for everything that He does. Even when it comes to soul winning, it's all about glorifying God. God gets the glory, never us. It's always about God. And then just a couple more things real quick. The holiness of God. You see the holiness of God in there. He alone is holy. He's holy. He's perfectly holy is the idea. He's perfectly set apart from sin. You're going to see that all through the Psalms also. Keep looking for that. All the nations. All the nations shall come and worship you. I want to say some more about that. I need to stop because that statement there is something that the Jews missed. They missed that. They did not like that all nations will come and worship God. We're going to talk on Sunday and we'll save this uh, or Wednesday about this more. But think about as you as you prepare for Wednesday. Think about the conversation that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman. We're going to talk about that Wednesday. And we're going to talk about it more on next Sunday. That conversation about worship with the Samaritan woman is very important because there Jesus talks about something. And I believe he's even saying something that's being referenced to here about who is to be worshiping God and who's able to worship God. And even especially about location when it comes to worshiping God. So let's stop right there. You okay with that? A lot more I wanted to say, but we'll pick it up Wednesday. We're doing okay with our time. Uh, I appreciate your comments and, and all the things you said today. God bless you. Let's get ready to worship God.